Welcome, listeners, to FF Plus, your spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, discussion, and once a year, a top 10 list, because that's what we're here to do. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as usual, is my man, Coles Davis. Hello, everybody. I'm hoping everybody is having a great, happy holidays out there and a happy new year. Absolutely. I echo that completely. Hopefully, you guys all got some wonderful movie-themed gear or some movies themselves, some books, something film-related for your Christmas if you celebrate, uh, whatever it is you do, and hopefully everybody's staying safe and healthy and all of that good stuff, because clearly that's the most important thing. Well, normally I'd read our spiel about what FF Plus is, but we're not here to do spoiler-free reviews this week. Instead, we are here to talk about our top 10 movies of the year. And for this year, we've decided to do something a bit different than usual, and we're going to go against the norm of ranking. That's right, we're going to be rebels, and we're not going to give you a 1 through 10 list in order. Instead, we're going to talk about all of our favorite films of the year. Some of them will be the same, some will not. And then we'll call out a few honorable mentions as well. I will give my number one overall. I think Celeste probably will do that as well. And then and we'll do that at the very end so you know what our number one movie of the year is. But the rest of them, we're not going to put them in order. Instead, we're going to do alphabetical. And honestly, the reason for this is I've had a love-hate relationship with the struggle of ranking and making lists for years now. It's definitely entertaining and a lot of fun to do this and to argue about lists. But... The reality is that when you see as many movies as we do each year, picking just 10 that you love can be really, really hard. And honestly, even picking, say, 30 movies, like I plan to do with my written version of this, is going to be hard. Because it all comes down to nitpicking and debating minor flaws in pieces of art that we already appreciate. And so I think that all lists are about personal resonance, and in keeping that on brand with this podcast... They're about which movies made us feel the most and not what is better or worse than something else on the list. So these lists reflect both mine and Kalesa's taste, what we appreciate in filmmaking for any number of reasons, and these lists are full of movies that we think are worth seeing and probably enjoying yourself. So without further ado, it's time to get into it. This is our top 10-ish of the year in alphabetical order. We're going to start with one of the ones on my list, and that is Coda. Coda is the Apple TV Plus produced film, or I, I shouldn't say produced, they bought it and they put it out, they distributed it. Film that won both the Grand Jury and the Audience Award at Sundance in 2021. Now, that should tell you a lot right there. I know that that is what sparked my interest in the film, was anytime a movie can hit that hard, that it wins the overall award at the major festival and it works for both the critics and the audience you know you have something special and coda was that special for me it's that coming of age story centered largely around these characters with deafness and it's all about how they navigate this path of this teenager who is not deaf herself but she's trying to make a way for herself in the world and she discovers that she has this passion for singing and that's at odds with her family members who cannot hear themselves and rely on her to be their interpreter to help keep their fishing business going. It's got romance. It's got wonderful music. 
it has a very genuinely depicted and unique conflict, that of deafness. Something that we actually saw Coalesce be a theme in several films this year. Eternals uh, dealt with deafness. Even A Quiet Place 2 deals with deafness. Kind of a, new, a really banner year for take, tackling that subject. The film's relationships are beautiful. Every single one of them, the performances, I think, are pitch perfect. And it, it follows a predictable formula but I don't think that that changes anything about how powerful the message of this movie is. For me, it has what I would say is the best final 10 minutes of the year. I get overwhelmed with emotion and happy tears. And it is just the result of incredible storytelling from the director. And I think that it is a movie that will stick with me for years and years to come and be one that I always want to just put on when I want to feel good at the end of the day. It reminds me a lot of last year's The Peanut Butter Falcon and how I responded to that film. So that's Coda. I love it. It is available streaming on Apple TV Plus, and it was discussed on episode 290 of this podcast if you would like to hear more about it in its full spoiler glory. Next on the list is a pick from Coles, and that is Come On, Come On. Yes, I have been a fan of Mike Mills ever since 20th Century Women that came out in 2015. And... He seems to have the skill of being able to get really deep and to really get close to how human life is. And this new film is the same as 20th Century Woman. We see this guy. He's almost like a guy who goes around and he documents things. And he's documenting what these kids are talking about, the future, and how the world is looking. And will the world get better or will it get worse? And it speaks to our current times right now where people are just... We, we don't really want, know what's really going to happen next. I mean, two years ago, we were able to walk around, you know, go to the movies, go to all these places, go traveling. And then the next year, we have to worry about a pandemic. And, you know, everything just feels so unpredictable right now. And what we really get to see is this new generation of people who are going to be charged with looking after the world when most of us are gone and getting to understand their viewpoints, their opinions, and what they believe about life is a beautiful thing. You know, this film deals with a lot of heavy issues. It deals with mental health. It deals with childhood, parenthood. parenthood. I really love um, Gabby Hoffman's character in this film. She's a mother who is on one side having to deal with a husband who has bipolar disorder. And also she has to deal with a child who's trying to come to terms with understanding what's going on with his dad. And also growing up, you know, and growing up and having this, this bust of energy and, you know, seeing how hard it is for her to really be a mother and how hard it is for you to be a parent at all. I mean, you probably understand this. I'm pretty sure there have been moments where you have really said to yourself, like, do I have this all figured out? Am I doing everything right? And this film really gets into the meat of that and how we, even as adults, we're chosen and believe that we have everything figured out, that someday our lives will get in order. But who says that's going to happen? Who says that? You know, we're doing the best we can now, and that's the best way of figuring it out. I mean, nothing is ever really perfect. The performances in this film, you have Joaquin, you have Gabby Hoffman, and then you also have this kid, Woody Norman. I think this guy is going to be a name soon enough. A24 always has a skill of, in their films, getting these wonderful child actors, and they turn in these great performances, and it's like, you wonder, like, where does this kid come from? Like, where was this kid beforehand? Like, how were you able to find him? So Woody Norman, another great child performance in the A24 film. I really love the use of black and white cinematography. I know these days it can be kind of gimmicky, and people like to use it more for style than actual substance, but 
it fit right with this film. This film is not really melodramatic and it's not really you know, sad to watch, but it just deals with real life. And if you're able to get real life on the screen and make it feel that way, then you've done something wonderful. Yeah, absolutely echo what you're saying is in my next, you know, 10 or so movies as well. It's one of these that would be an honorable mention for me. If we're talking about 10 best of the year, it's up there. Phenomenal, phenomenal film. You can rent this on video on demand right now and watch it at home. Highly recommend doing that. It's a great pick from Kales. My next one up is Dear Evan Hansen. This is one of those divisive picks where it's going to be on my list and not on many people else's lists, but that's fine because who cares? I care about my list and that's the only one. Dear Evan Hansen is obviously about, it, it is a remake, it's an adaptation of a stage musical starring Ben Platt, written by Pasek and Paul, and Evan is this high school kid with social anxiety who unintentionally gets kind of caught up in this lie after he unites himself with this family after their son has committed suicide and allows them to think that he was their son's friend before his son, their son died. And he kind of puts on this charade and goes through with it and ends up garnering a lot of social goodwill from both his classmates and parents alike. And the thing about this is it's very personal to me. I have loved this stage musical for years. My best friend flew up here on his birthday to see it live with me, an off-Broadway version of it in Seattle. And frankly, the criticisms of this movie are all about the problematic plot and what they consider a character who is lying and doing all of these good things under this guise of a complete fake persona that is ultimately hurting the people that he says he's helping and he's getting some benefit. And I just don't see it that way at all. I think that that's a very cynical look at this movie. And for me, the movie has an extremely positive effect. I think that it champions uh, a person who wants to be helpful and may not make all the right decisions, but is genuinely caring about other people. And I don't think that folks understand enough that the main character in this movie himself has a mental struggle and has a social disorder in the same way that the kid that is committing suicide that kind of drives the plot. Our, our main character could be that kid, and yet he's not because he goes a different path. And I think that the movie version actually updates the stage version in a big way as well. They add some things at the end that take what could be kind of hard to stomach as redemption for the main character, and they add on you know, some genuine consequence as well to what he experiences. It's not all a perfect world for him. I love the performances, the casting for this. I, it works for me. I know folks complained about Ben Platt being too old to be in the movie. I don't care about that. Like, this character is Ben Platt to me. He made it what it is. And I think that without him, it wouldn't fit. I think his performance is unique because he brings a physical nature to it with his mannerisms with his way in which he can personally show that social anxiety that i don't think everyone could do and he's got the singing chops right like his voice is impossible to replicate by just a regular normal kind of actor who doesn't have that training but i love the cast i think the songs are phenomenal it's one of my favorite soundtracks of all time and so that drives a lot of my love for it i just think it's a really really solid 
good adaptation. It's got a couple of new songs in it as well that I think are wonderful additions. And I, I was really blown away by it and just completely satisfied. I'd been looking forward to it as one of my most anticipated films of the year. And it works for me just like it did on the stage. So I'm not here to change anybody's mind. I'm just telling you why it matters to me. It's important. I, I think that it's awesome when we have a movie about high schoolers that is honest about looking at how they feel and puts in light how we can hopefully make this world a better place and make it one where everyone can be seen and can be heard and can feel like they're not invisible because that's very important and too many of our kids feel that way on a day-to-day -day basis. This movie is available now to rent and buy both on video on demand. You can also get it on Blu-ray disc. Patrick and I discussed this in depth on episode 293 if you'd like to hear more about it. Next up is one that Coles and I both share in our top 10, and that is Denis Villeneuve's adaptation, or part one of Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Frank Herbert's sci-fi masterpiece, Dune. Coles, I'll let you get us started. This is one of those films that you truly call an experience. Experience that you just take it in and you don't really know what to make sense of it the first time around, but you know that it makes you feel something different that you don't usually feel when watching a film. This is a sci-fi fantasy world that is built to the extreme. To it, There's no limits with this world. Uh, Dennis did a great job of building this world up and taking this book adaptation, which is a very dense story. If anybody is not familiar with Dune, which I was very unfamiliar with before I came across this movie being made, the book deals with a lot of distinct themes and just like a lot of gaudy themes that are really hard to wrap your head around unless you really have done a deep dive into the book outside of just reading it. So being able to bring that to the to the big screen and it not relying on any exposition or really not relying on any like trope to really get you to buy into it. I mean, I didn't honestly, after watching this, I really didn't feel like I needed to read the book much. I felt like that everything was able to come across very easily for me on the screen. And I'm pretty sure that came out for a lot of other people. The cinematography, the music, I think this is one of Hans Zimmer's best scores. You know, I know that some people have complained that it's a little bit loud at certain points, it's very incoherent, but I think that's the main point about it, especially when it gets to the, the um, action scenes and some of the big dramatic moments. I think that Hans's oomph that he puts into the music really helps out with the emotional effect. The cast, I mean, they're all good to some great, uh, it's definitely an ensemble cast that probably ranks among the best of this year. And also, there's going to be a part two to this. And I noticed some people complain that they would like to see a whole story put into this one film. But this just gives me more reason enough to go back to part one and keep watching over and over again until I really get its mystery and all of its brilliance and be set for when part two comes out. Yeah, Absolutely. Could not agree more with that. I think it is every bit the epic feeling that I expected and wanted from this sci-fi movie and this adaptation. It's the kind of film that you just don't get very much of anymore. We get blockbusters all the time, but there's an immersiveness to the storytelling here. And I think a lot of that is maybe the lack of dialogue. The dialogue is not constant it's not a ton of exposition 
it's a lot of show and not tell and feel and not tell. And I appreciate that in a big way. And I just latched onto it. I think, you know, the scope is so large and it's dealing with politics and religion and mysticism and economics and warfare. And it's all within this incredibly interesting futuristic setting. And I think Denis Villeneuve is able to design the different factions in a way that are both visually understandable and totally compelling and interesting. And he does it in such a short runtime. I mean, yes, it's over two hours long, but I, I wanted, I could have watched this for two, three, four, five more hours and been completely happy with that if he'd have wanted to stretch this out and cover everything in the book. But I think that what he leaves out of the book is okay for the most part. There's no major beef I have with things that are missing. I agree with you that the score is easily one of the best and, and also one of Zimmer's best. It's not one of his most re-listenable scores for me personally. Like I don't put this on and play it in my car like I would Interstellar or Inception or you know Gladiator or something like that. But in context of the movie and what it brings to the film, bar none, it's just an absolute game changer. And I absolutely love it. This movie is awe-inducing. I mean, it just it just gives you that feeling of being transported into a complete other world and you're lost in it and you forget where you are and you come back out of that and you're like, wow, damn, now I got to be back in the boring real world instead. There's no sandworms here. That's not very cool. I, I think it's amazing. You know, the cast is awesome. I think that Rebecca Ferguson nails uh, Lady Jessica and does her so much justice. Timothy Chalamet can do anything he wants. That kid can play any role and will be Oscar worthy in it. I don't care what it is. He, he is just a, such a talent, such a phenomenal, phenomenal talent. And even the players who have like smaller parts like Oscar Isaac, he's not in this film a whole lot of scenes, but he brings a, a gravitas to his to the movie and to his character's presence that I think is awesome. It's got action. It's got heart. It's got intrigue. It's got mystery. I was breathless watching this and I'm so anxious for part two. I cannot wait. Two years is far too long, uh, but it'll get here eventually. Dune is available right now to rent and buy both on video on demand. And it is also available on Blu-ray and 4k. I'm sorry. It will be available on Blu-ray and 4k on January 11th. So very soon. Dune we discussed on episode 296. If you would like to dive further into it. Next up on Kalesa's list, we have The Eyes of Tammy Faye. This film is very weird for me because I remember when I first watched it. I mean, you were right there on Facebook. We both shared our ultimate love for it. After thinking about a few months for this, I've kind of have fallen not really out of love for it, but I've kind of have understood that maybe I might have given it more than what it really is as a film and maybe the my beer goggles were a little bit too shiny <laughs> it happens <laughs> man it happens it, it, it happens but outside of that this is still a great film to watch jessica chastain for me gives the best performance of the year and that's male or female and for me ever since i've seen her in this film i haven't seen anybody really come close to her throne maybe kirsten stewart for spencer might can get into that same mention but she still is the front runner for me for winning Best Actress this year. You also have Andrew Garfield, who had a hell of a year this year. I mean, he had Tick, Tick, Boom, and well, and then this film. 
And there are some other films he did this year <laughs> that should do better not to spoil. But the man's having a hell of a year. And it, I think, honestly, this film turns in as his best performance. I mean, he really fits into this pastor who is coming with good means in the beginning of the film. He has has these dreams of wanting to reach a lot of people in the world and to show them what good Jesus and God could do for them in their lives. And then over the film, gradually we see him become this guy that we almost don't recognize. He becomes someone different. And it shows you how easy it is for people who can lose themselves to fame, riches, and getting all this power in the world and how it just twists their mindset and makes them become totally different people. And we see that also from Tammy Faye. I mean, it's pretty much based on the documentary The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which I heard is a much better representation of the story. But given that we're following these real-life figures, the costume and the makeup on this film is among some of the best of the year as well. The way that we see Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield age in this film, it felt gradual. It felt like that we were able to go through these decades without really knowing where we were at, but we were understanding that some time had passed. And we also get this nice arch archival footage. You know, we get of course, there's a little bit of time jumps in this film, but we really travel through the ages with this couple, Tammy and Jim Baker, and we get to see them change as people, and we get to see how their marriage, you know, acts in response to this. And it's just great drama. It's very underlooked. It's very under the radar. It's not really as get a lot of viewing ship that I thought it would get when I first watched it. But for me, this is easily among one of the best of the year and some of the best acting you'll see in a film for a mighty long time. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I mean, it blew me away when I saw it too. Like you're talking about, we both really responded to this and we were sort of outliers amongst most of our critic friends. People were looking at us with side eye, like what is wrong with you guys? And we both loved it and I still love it as well. It is in, you know, my next group down, my honorable mention still, because I think everything you said is correct. And what I found fascinating, Coles, about this one, and I didn't put the episode number on here because we didn't do a full episode on it, but if you go back and you listen to our Feelin' Film Plus week review of this movie that we did, it's interesting because we came to this from such a different perspective. You not being someone of a religious faith background that had a connection to this in the same way that I grew up with it. And yet we both responded to the movie and what it was doing in a strong way. And so I thought that that was pretty important to note. Um, but yeah, I think that the performances are wonderful. And to, I mean, and that's supporting performances as well. And it really is a great film that I think people looked away from because the overall critical consensus was so negative that people just said, oh, well, I'm not going to watch that. And hopefully maybe hearing it pop up here on our list will once again encourage some folks to seek it out. You can rent or buy it right now on Video On Demand, and it is also available on Blu-ray. Next is on my list, and that is the documentary, the animated documentary, Flea. Flea is a movie that I continuously heard about and I came to kind of late in the game because we're here in Seattle and sometimes the prestige flicks that premiere at some of the film festivals don't reach us for quite a few months and after they've hit those uh, circuits. But when I did get a chance to see it, I, I was reluctant to be honest. I thought, okay, you know, we're going to put animation to a documentary. I've seen one of these before and it was pretty good. It's called Waltz with Bashir. And... I just wasn't certain that this could be 
the masterpiece I saw people referring it as. And what happened is it blew me out of the water. It is a staggering and harrowing and one of a kind work, in my opinion. And when you break it down, it's honestly a pretty simple story about one man's life as an Afghan refugee fleeing his war-torn country while simultaneously coming to terms with his own homosexuality. And it's relayed through a series of personal interviews. The unique presentation of the documentary is that it is animated, and even the sections where the gentleman, is Amin, is being interviewed, those are animated. And that's in an effort to conceal who he is, right? He's trying to protect himself still in this way. And, and it works so well for me. There are different animation styles that are used throughout the film to show different sections and different moods and emotions and periods of time throughout his life. There's a blend of powerful archival footage that goes into this as well. And I think that the documentary just emotionally conveys his terrifying, tragic, and difficult experiences as he is kind of fully opening himself up for the first time. He hasn't talked about this before, and so we're experiencing it as he's going through this process. So it's got a, a rawness to it. This thing never feels sensationalized and exaggerated. It is awful what we learn about and the way in which humans are trafficked or, you know, in a good way, even across country lines in order to get out of harmful situations. It's not all roses. It's not a good thing. It doesn't happen in a way that is safe. It can actually happen in a way that's very dangerous for them. And many won't make it, even if they pay this incredible amount of money to get themselves from a dangerous situation into one where they hope to be able to stay in a country. It doesn't always work out like that either. And I think that it really helps me to begin to reflect on my own blessings, something that I think we don't always take enough stock in. Sometimes we take them for granted. And I'm just really grateful for the filmmaking team. And I, I think that they used some unique gifts to shine a light on this story in a very respectful and tender and ultimately a masterfully cinematic way. And I, I mean, I'm thankful to Amin for bearing his soul with the world and sharing this story with us, because I think that maybe he can help us influence the world, even if just a few people see this and understand, like, you're not alone. You're not the only person to have gone through this refugee experience. And that was a big takeaway was like, his story is maybe the only one you've ever heard quite like this. But you have to realize that he is by far not the only person to have this experience. And we just don't know or don't care because we're sitting here in a warmed up building, drinking whatever we want, eating whatever we want in complete comfort, totally free to be whoever we are, whoever we want to be and say whatever we want to say and do whatever we want to do. And so many people in the world don't grow up with that ability like Amin. So this is hands down my favorite documentary of the year. There are quite a few more that I love and there are more on this list, but this is the top documentary for me and probably my top animated film as well. It is just that good. 
I don't know when it's going to be available, unfortunately. It was in a short theatrical run, and there's been no release date that I could find yet for uh, Video On Demand, but keep it on your radar. It's called Flea. First chance you get to see it, you absolutely should. Next one up is on Kalesa's list. That is Godzilla vs. Kong. I believe the first blockbuster of 2021 to come out. A stone cold action blockbuster. I didn't expect to love this film as much as I as I did. I remember finding myself really comparing it against Kong Skull Island and Godzilla: Rise of the Monsters, which I did not like very much. And I think this film just honestly blows both of those films out of the water for me. It's all spectacle. It is all about sitting back, watching things blow up, watching these big monsters slug each other, and just enjoying the awe of it. I mean, the visual effects of this film are some of his strongest selling points. Especially, there's a sequence in this film where Kong takes the scientists and the soldiers to Hollow Earth, which is his homeland. And for me, it ranks him on probably one of my favorite scenes of the year. I mean, I wish that I was able to go and experience this in a theater like you did. You know, but it was during the early days of the pandemic. I still wasn't vaccinated, so I didn't want to take any chances. But I watched this at least a good three times on the first weekend it came out on HBO Max. And I bought the 4K for good measure because this has a ton of replayability for me. I mean, it really shows these monsters and these titans able to finally duke it out and to not be anything less but all about a good time. It's not. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It doesn't do a Godzilla or a Godzilla Rise of the Monsters where we're having this kind of drama that is kind of taken away from seeing these seeing these monsters just do battle and destroy things. No, it's all about watching these monsters destroy things. If if I could really describe it, it would be like almost like the last scene of the last fight of Man of Steel, but ten times more chaotic, more vicious, and just more outlandish. It really goes for the home runs, and it hits every one of them as a big screen blockbuster experience. Man, this has been just outside my top 10 all year as well. So you're going to get no arguments from me. I, too, wish you could have made it to the theater to see it. We'll cross our fingers that before the next film in the franchise, maybe somehow they put this one back in for folks that didn't get an opportunity that first time. Because it was. I saw it in IMAX, and it was a movie like it was the kind of movie you want to see when you got Godzilla and Kong these gigantic titans that take up that entire IMAX screen duking it out man when oh it is it's glorious it is so much fun I've watched it quite a few times this year and I agree with every word it's it's a badass movie and easily one of the better blockbuster action movies of the year and of the last few years even I just loved it. I loved the way it was constructed. I loved the way that the fight played out. Uh, even though my beloved Kong may not have fully come up on the winning side of this fight. It's arguable. I've had some debates, and I'm willing to have more. But it's it's hard. I My case is kind of small. <laughs> but you can buy this movie on VOD right now. It is also streaming on HBO Max still. And you can get it on Blu-ray and 4K now as well. And it was discussed in depth on episode 278 of this podcast if you want more. The next movie is on my list, and that is The Green Knight. Listen, I'm not going to go into this, honestly, because not two days before this podcast drops in the podcast feed, you're going to look there and you're going to see sitting right before it, episode 304, The Green Knight. Patrick and I just went and talked about this movie for two full hours 
It's a great movie. I absolutely love it. I think that it is a phenomenal adaptation of the source material, which I already liked. It turns the source material on its head in some ways, and I think it does so in a fascinating way. I think the performances are across the board outstanding. I think the production design, the aesthetic of this film, the way that it takes this medieval fantasy environment and merges it with this dramatic indie A24 surrealism that David Lowry is known for and brings to the quest that our Gawain goes on. It's phenomenal. And I was completely blown away by it. And I say as much for two full hours in that episode. So it is available to rent and buy now on video on demand. And it is also available on Blu-ray and 4K as well. And again, discussed on episode 304 if you want to hear more about it. After that, we have on Colest's list, Last Night in Soho. Film that lived right up to its anticipation level for me. A, another great Edgar Wright film to experience. And actually one of the first, one of his um, two films I've seen in the theaters other than Baby Driver. What you have with this film is you have Thomas McKenzie, you have Annie Taylor-Joy. Probably one of the best acting duos you'll get in any film this year. They kind of play opposites, but in the scenes they have together, they are able to have this chemistry and this kind of kinship that you feel is realistic. And it really plays well for both of their characters. They could not be far from different. They come from different eras and also different side of the tracks. You have a film that deals with the Me Too movement. You have a film that deals with exploitation of women in the entertainment business. And also how we sometimes put our glamour glasses when we look to history, where we remember all the great things that happened, but we leave all of the bad and sordid and dirty things, we leave them under the carpet and we don't speak of those things again. This film is about coming to terms with that, coming to face to face with that, and also being shocked at not really knowing, you know, the people that we come across in our daily life. And you get the Edgar Wright Hallmarks, you get that editing. You get the quick cuts. You get the great musical soundtrack. You get the sense of staging, especially there are some moments in this film that felt like a little bit of a musical, surprisingly, um, especially one scene where Annie Taylor-Joy, which I learned she does sing on her own, and pretty impressive scene, pretty impressive musical scene that you'll see in this film. And it's a good time for me. I, I have some questions and I have some some little bad spots with the twist ending that happened in this film because for the first two thirds of it, it is moving at a gliding speed. But overall, this is another great feature from Edgar Wright and it sits among the best of my ear for a really good reason. Great movie. Great, great movie. Absolutely thoroughly enjoyed this one as well. I love your picks. I don't think there's anything on your list that I'm going to have a major argument with at this point. You can rent this one on Video On Demand now, and you can buy it on Video On Demand uh, on January the 4th, and it is on Blu-ray and 4K as of January the 18th. And I didn't write it down because I failed, but Patrick and I did talk about this one in full as well on one of our episodes earlier this year, and you can look for that if you want a deep dive into the movie. Well, after that, we have one of my more surprising picks, I know, for some when I say it, and that is The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. This movie 
is not going to be on a lot of lists. And I understand that partially because people haven't seen it. Actually, mostly because people haven't seen it, in my opinion. This is a time loop movie. And in my perfect world, this movie would be getting as much recognition or more than a familiar film similar to this from a couple years ago called Palm Springs. Everybody went gaga over that movie, and I think that folks deserve to see this film because its potential is there as well. This is Time Loop and Young Adult Romance, and I know that that's going to just naturally turn off some folks, and that's fine, but it's worth your time. It's basically, you had me at hello for me. I was sucked into this right from the start. It has an intelligent, witty, snappy dialogue script. It has the kind of tropes that I love. It has extremely enjoyable and authentic chemistry between two two leads who I think are both excellent and have been in everything I've seen them in. They're not quite stars yet, and they just disappear into these roles easily. So you don't see them as something else. You automatically feel that they're these characters. I had a blast watching them try to figure out what makes the perfect day and go into a lot of math and science in trying to figure out what's happening in their situation and how to get themselves out of it. And ultimately, it works by them forming a connection with each other and getting out of this feeling of isolation. It's something that works really well for me during the pandemic, and I could see being able to affect a lot of people similarly who have experienced something like that during this time where you just feel like you're all in your own little world and bubble and not able to connect with the world sometimes. I don't think that the filmmaking gets in its own way, which is appreciated. It's kept very simple. There's no special effects to speak of. And it's just a strong focus on Mark and Margaret, the two main characters. It doesn't try to introduce a bunch of side characters and subplots. The map itself that the title is based on is sickly sweet. I love it. I'm 100% moved by the kind of emotional gestures that we see in this film. And it's just a reminder for us to enjoy the little things and the moments of our lives that we tend to pass over without giving a thought. It's the kind of rom-com that I'm always hoping to discover, and I will be championing it for years to come. Everyone I've introduced to this film who's actually checked it out has come back to me and said that they loved it and had a really, really good time with it. So I think it truly is a matter of people just not watching this film. It is available now, streaming on Amazon Prime Video. So if you have that service, you can see it for free. You really have no excuse. Maybe I'll get a couple more people to check it out just for this episode. And if so, it will make my day completely. It'll make my whole whole episode of this. Like It'll all be worth it if that happens for me. After that, we have on my list, The Mitchells versus The Machines. This is another movie that is animated, and I have an affinity for those kinds of films, as many people who have listened to me for a while will know. It was hard leaving several of my favorite animated films off of this list, but I had to get cut somewhere. I think that The Mitchells vs. The Machines is outstanding. This directorial and production team, they are on a roll. So it is produced by Lord and Miller, who made Into the Spider-Verse and the Lego films. It is directed by Mike Rianda, and this is a passion project. It's something that 
this director had been working on for, I think, six years. It's got the same lively, vibrant, and colorful animation and art style that you might have expected from anything Lord and Miller have done recently. It's not the exact same style as Spider-Verse, but it is the same feeling aesthetically. It's popping off the screen in a way that is unique and that you're not used to seeing. The way that the movie takes place is it's about this girl, Katie, who is about to leave her family and go to film school. So, of course, this movie also resonates with me and I think many folks who have any sort of artistic pursuit because this is a person who is passionate about her art and she spends her time making little short films using her brother and her family and her dog, Manchi, who's really cute. And she's got this family who doesn't fully understand her, specifically her dad, Rick, who is an outdoorsy type. He carries around a screwdriver in his pocket instead of a cell phone. Like, he doesn't understand her obsession with technology. Simultaneously, as this all is happening, an AI goes rogue, voiced by Olivia Coleman, which is a fantastic voice work for this role, in my opinion, and takes over the world and starts to essentially imprison all of the human beings. And that's where we get the Mitchells versus the machines. The Mitchells have to go on this journey of essentially trying to save the world and stop the robopocalypse all while reuniting and coming together as a family and learning to appreciate each other's for their own personalities and what they bring to the table. It sounds generic. It sounds like something you've seen before. And in some ways, I guess the plot, if you break it down, it is, but it's the way it's presented to you. It just works. It hits me so hard. And I'm not going to lie, between the first and second viewings of this film, my own daughter left the nest. She went off to her specialized computer coding school to become a video game developer. And I can just see so much of Katie in her. Like that's the world she lives in. We were talking today about her interests and there's like a, a very small list of things that she cares about because she's so passionate about this one thing. And while I understand her and I don't have that disconnect that Katie and her father Rick do in this movie, watching them slowly grow and learn to appreciate each other is a beautiful, beautiful thing because I will always, always, always promote strong father-daughter relationships. I don't think we have enough of them in the world. Uh, and it's beautiful to see on screen depicted in this way. So it's a joyful watch. It's super fun. The references are a blast to kind of pick out the cultural stuff, the pop culture stuff. It's available to rent and buy on video on demand. It's on Blu-ray with a commentary and an extended cut. I've dove deep into the special features already and I love them. And it is also streaming still on Netflix. So you have no excuse. You can get to this anytime you want. I think it is probably, along with Flea, the prime Oscar contender as well. So if you're into catching up on movies that are going to be there as nominated movies, you can be assured that Mitchells vs. the Machines is going to show up. Patrick and I discussed this one on episode 299 if you would like to hear more about it. All right, after that, we have on Kalesa's list, Nightmare Alley. Nightmare Alley is a film that kept me interested and compelled from the first minute it showed on the screen. You have an impressive ensemble cast that features Bradley Cooper, Tony Collette, Kate Blanchett, Richard Jenkins, Ron Perlman, 
Uh, it's a who's who of famous actors, and they all work together in this film. But my MVPs would have to go to Bradley Cooper, Cate Blanchett, and Richard Jenkins. Also, I love how this film is a different breath of fresh air than we get with Guillermo del Toro's films. Usually, del Toro deals with the fantasy. He deals with science fiction. You know, he deals with, you know, just these fictional worlds and everything. And that's what he's known best for. But in this film, he kind of gets grounded. He goes to mid-20th century America after World War II. And we follow this guy, Bradley Cooper's character, who is looking for a job. And he finds work at a circus. And then he comes across figuring out how to con people and learning a code and how to deceive and eventually thing that he's good at and the power and the influence he's able to wield to it eventually just goes to his head and it becomes almost like a parable tale about how pride comes before the fall and i really love Riley cooper's character he's a guy who is dirty and who's no good but at the same time he's very good at what he does and he has a little bit of charisma about him even though you know he's a nasty guy and kate blanchett She's very consistent as an actress, so no matter what film she's in, you know she's going to be great in it. And it was also nice to get that sense of 1940s and 1950s scenery. There's a lot of uh, moments in this film where we get the airy scent of like neo-noir, and then we get mystery, and then we get drama, and then we get shock, and we get surprises, and we get twists. And this film has everything. I mean, it has all the ingredients of being an entertaining ride suspenseful and has an ending that really puts things in full circle and it's among one of my um, biggest surprises of the year we both came into this not knowing what it was going to be about however in the last few days i did take a good look at the remake of nightmare alley and i have to agree with you aaron it is a much more superior film than what this new re- new remake is but i still enjoy it <laughs> That's totally fair. I- I'm glad that you brought that up, though, because I- I'm-, I'm glad that we can encourage folks to check it out. The remake is available on the Criterion channel. You can just watch it streaming. I loved it. I loved it more than this one, even. And I actually bought the Criterion edition while I was watching it just because I wanted to own it and be able to dig into the special feature stuff. But good pick. You are not alone, even though this is not one of my own honorable mentions. There are plenty of folks out there who have strongly resonated with nightmare alley i'm not surprised to see it on your list very very cool it is available in theaters right now still if you haven't had a chance to go see it you should probably do that before spider-man pushes it completely out which it seems to be doing to every movie that's not named spider-man at this point well after that we have one of our joint picks and that is nine days you want to kick us off with that one another grossly underlooked film this year This film features a Winston Duke performance that puts into perspective everything he's done to this point. This feels like this is his coming out party. And I know we've seen him in Black Panther. I know we've seen him in Us. We know that he's awesome. But this film shows you that this guy has another another angle, another level that he can take it to when it comes to acting. And this guy is a superstar. He honestly is. If he can get more films like this that take advantage of what he can show, then this guy's going to be a household name. Uh, it's it's among one of the best performances of the year. Zazie beats in this. She's great as well. And what I love most about this film is it really reminds us how you know, grateful we should be that we're right now breathing the air that we are, that we're right now living. Because you know, the film focuses on a guy who is bringing, a, bringing upon these new people who are trying to, are trying to win a chance to live a full life. 
know, they get nine days to really make really make a, an impression on Winston Duke's character. And if they don't, they have to get sent back to wherever they came from. And if they do, they are be able to grant it to live out a life like we are able to. Film is very philosophical. It's very deep and it's very serious with its theme. Some of them may go over some people's heads. So I would demand that this film gets a rewatch because it totally deserves it. But it makes you understand that everything from, you know, touching the grass to walking down the street, you know, to eating ice cream, like all of these indelible small moments of our life are really grand when you think about them. You are able to do this. You know, there there's that whole meme that goes around that, hey, at least you were the sperm that won. You know, if you're having a baby, think about it. You won the race. And I think, honestly, all of our bad days, all of our good days, that all should be taken with a bit of love and a bit of blessing and a bit of appreciation that we're able to experience that. This is going to be the best movie. Life is going to be the best movie that all of us are going to see before we are passed away and gone. And this film really takes that to heart. And it really, it really makes you just sit back and think. And I love when films do that, when films are able to be more than just something that's fun to watch. If they're able to make you think, if they're able to make you relate what they're talking about to your life and how maybe, you know, you haven't been taking, appreci taking an appreciation of what you have or what you are able to do or what you were able to feel in sensations and all this. It really makes you take that step back and realize that, you know, you have it as good, you know, as, as many do and you have it as good and we shouldn't be complaining about the little things because the little things don't matter, but it's also the little things that made life just more valuable for us. Yeah, well said. I, I mean, it is a film that challenges us to re-examine our lives and to highlight and focus on all of the little things, that the moments that matter. Much like the map of Tiny Perfect Things does in its own way, different genres, different style of getting at that same message. This is obviously more philosophical. It's more religious in a way, not in a way that beats you over the head, but there is essentially a human who has died and is now playing God and making the choice of who gets to go be born. This feels like a live action companion piece to my favorite film of last year, which was Pixar's Soul. It's impossible, in my opinion, not to compare these two movies because they're so similar in how they depict essentially a soul before it gets born. And there is something very transcendent about this high concept fantasy drama style of movie making. It looks awesome, but it's super simplistic and stripped down and bare. And that's all because we don't need to know any details. We don't need this extravagant set to show us some otherworldly place. This is all just kind of taking place in a room on a beach in front of a projector. I love how this movie uses old technology or how the character that Winston Duke is playing, I think his name is Will, how he is watching people. He has an obsession with one of these people that he put through to give a chance at life who ended up becoming a world-renowned violinist. She's having an incredible career and he just loves watching her and he watches her on these old CRT televisions. He takes pictures of the candidates with a Polaroid camera. He uses VHS tapes to record the different live points of life that he watches on a 
on a frequent basis of all the people that he sent through. It is a profound and imaginative debut film. A debut film from a director, first one, from Edson Oda. It's amazing that he was able to make this. And I think that Winston Duke, again, I have no words. It is one of my favorite five performances of the year. I think that it is incredibly underseen and in a perfect world, everybody would know this movie and he would be getting as much praise as Will Smith does in King Richard or Denzel Washington in The Tragedy of Macbeth, if not more. I think that there's more emotion that he has to hit in this performance than anybody. And it also, it highlights Winston Duke comes from a theatrical background. That's where he got his start. I remember looking him up and learning about him after Black Panther because he was my favorite part. I just thought he was such a commanding presence. And that's another thing this movie does. He is a tall, very stocky man who is an imposing figure. And yet this character is very calm. He's compassionate. He is comforting to these folks. It's weird calling them folks. You don't even know what to call them because some of them don't make it through. And it's about their struggle of what would it feel like to not have to have to answer questions. He asks them questions throughout this movie. He's like, what would you do in this scenario? They literally just snapped into existence. How do you answer that question? Do you, you don't have anything to draw from to, you don't have a basis of right and wrong and, and they, yet they answer it differently. And it's fascinating to explore these things. So I love that you mentioned it demands a rewatch. I actually did my rewatch of it this morning because this is going to be the next main episode. So it won't be out right away. It'll be episode 305, but it's coming to you in a few days from now. And it might be out by the time you listen to this. I don't know. Um, you can rent or buy this movie on video on demand right now. It is also on Blu-ray right now. And I highly, highly recommend it just like Calesta's. Okay, the next three are on my list. I'll try to get through these a little quick. That is starting with The Rescue. The Rescue is a documentary from the filmmaker Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vassarhelye, his wife. These folks made the recent documentary on Alex Honnold, Free Solo, which is one of my favorite documentaries ever. Jimmy Chin himself is a climber, and so he's in that world. This film kind of takes him out of that world and covering a different type of topic. The Rescue is telling the story of a 2018 natural disaster in Thailand where a young boys soccer team gets stuck inside of a cave during a tsunami, essentially, and they have to be rescued. It is unbelievable how this whole event unfolds and i love watching movies like this it is what it is i think it is just incredible to see the human race come together to try and accomplish anything and when it's saving lives it's a little bit the the brief bittersweet cynic in me gets a little sad because it's like man you look at what we were able to do this international team of divers and experts and special forces and uh, different, you know, caving, you know, specialists and people with different people who had the resources to bring in and spend money to make the whole operation work. 
thousands of volunteers that it took to effectively go through with this plan. And they did all this for, you know, a dozen children to save the lives of a dozen children. And yet we just kind of throw world hunger off to the side and we're like, we're not going to worry about that, you know? So millions can die from that, but God forbid, you know, a soccer team of young boys die in this cave. And it's amazing what we were able to accomplish. And so there's a little bit of sadness there too, of like, maybe we just see enough of this. It'll be inspirational and people will wake up and people will start to care about others. And that's what I got out of this was, you know, you see this from the perspective of the folks that did the saving. And so I'll admit, it's a little bit one-sided. We're not seeing interviews with the boys themselves, but I didn't mind that because it's not about how everyone experienced this unique, dangerous situation. It's about everybody coming together and how that took place in order to get the eventual outcome that we always wanted. And it's one of those films that it is just so expertly made. The way that they craft it, it feels like a true blockbuster thriller. It looks gorgeous and it is just, it's anxiety inducing. I was gnawing at my fingernails and yelling, are you kidding me at the TV, even though I knew the outcome. So it's real life heroism at its finest. It is highly, highly recommended. You can watch it with your kids. It's available and streaming now on Disney+. Plus. I think it is a phenomenal documentary and one of the year's best. Next on my list is another documentary, and this is one that not very many people have seen. In fact, I think only one or two of my own Letterboxd friends have actually logged this. It is called Schumacher, and I'm listing it here not only because I love it, but because I'm hoping to draw some attention to it. It is about the F1 racing driver, one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest of all time. He is often considered the Michael Jordan of the sport, Michael Schumacher. And I have recently gotten into F1 racing over the last couple of years. In fact, this past season, I watched every single race for the first time ever. And I, as a new fan, I missed the whole Michael Schumacher era of dominance. And so I only know about him in context of the records he holds and the numbers that I see on TV that pop up and say, well, this is what Schumacher did. And now here's what these new drivers have done to top this, you know, here's what Lewis Hamilton has done to break this particular record or to tie this particular record. This goes all the way back. And you can tell that the filmmakers here truly love and respect Michael Schumacher. That's not to say that it sugarcoats things. This is a man who had his own issues. I mean, he loses a championship at one point because he intentionally runs another car off the road. That's not the greatest of sportsmanship on display. So he has to go through a journey of his own, but walking through his career, man, it, it was just such a joy. I think it is packed with the best thing that any sports documentary can ever have, which is archival footage. If I didn't get to live to see race footage and, and this stuff happen, I want there to be some record of it somewhere so that I can watch it as if I was doing so for the first time. And there's a ton of that. There's a ton of old F1 racing TV production content. There's old interviews. There's family photos and videos of Michael. He really is depicted as someone who's not just a great F1 driver, but he was a great son, a great brother, a great husband, a great father, and a great friend as well. And I learned so much about him. I won't go into all the details of the things that I personally learned, 
but what he accomplished is truly amazing. And I will always now hold him in the highest regard. And I will understand why he should be mentioned among the sporting greats of all time across any type of sport, because he, he really did have that level of dominance over the course of a decade plus, and, and he's just a great person, and it's really cool to get to learn his story. This movie is available and streaming on Netflix now. Next on my list, we had Spider-Man No Way Home. Another one that I really don't think needs me to say a lot about it at this point. Everyone has seen it, hopefully. If you haven't, I don't know what you're waiting for. You're doing so at your own risk, and you're missing out on a really dadgum fun movie. Listen, it just worked for me. It hit me in the right way, especially the second time around, seeing it on an IMAX screen with my son next to me. All of my issues fell away. I went into this in great depth during our episode 303 full podcast on it. And so I really don't want to just completely repurpose all of that information here and say it all again. I think that everything works. It takes the, it has the ability to use the multiverse concept in a way that shocked me in its effectiveness. And it was able to tell a story that grew characters that we knew and loved previously. It didn't just bring them in for fan service. It brought them in and it allowed them to grow further individually, as well as while driving character growth for Tom Holland's Spider-Man in ways that we had not seen yet. It is definitely his strongest performance from an emotional perspective. He has to go to a lot of different places in this one that he has not had to do in his trilogy before. And I love where this movie leaves off and what it sets up for a potential future of the Spider-Man franchise. So it's in theaters now. Go see it. Listen to episode 303 and hear me rave about it for like two full hours. And you will be glad you did. After that, on Kalesa's list, we have Summer of Soul. This is the one film of the whole year that truly wowed me on every level. It was like almost watching ecstasy, you know, seeing... These famous musicians and artists that were a part of my grandparents and my parents' generation being together on one stage on a, for a few days in Harlem in 1968, right where we're at the tumultuous political climate, where we had MLK was assassinated, we had Robert Kennedy assassinated, we had the Vietnam War, we had the Civil Rights Movement, all these events, and it felt like black people were not getting a break. But for a few days, there was a a, fe a musical festival in Harlem, Harlem, New York, in 1968. And the footage had not been seen ever by the public. It, it was recorded and it was all locked away for over 50 years until Blessed Soul, Questlove from one of my favorite hip-hop groups, The Roots, was able to come together with a few people, get a lot of backers, and be able to bring this footage to life in its glorious form. I mean, we see Stevie Wonder. We see Mahala Jackson. We see David Ruffin from The Temptations. We see Nina Simone. We see Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, these are some legendary groups. And just seeing these performances, you know, in, in HD in a sense, I mean, the footage looks really, really good. They did a really good job of cleaning up everything, cleaning up all the dust and all the scratches from the frame. I mean, everything looks beautiful. And it's almost like a time castle. It's a museum 
And I demand for everybody. I mean, if you love music, if you love concert documentaries, I mean, if you love seeing this lost footage, if this this film has it all in there, and it was the only film of this year that got a full five star rating for me, so that should tell you how much I love Summer of Soul. It, it's a wonderful achievement. No, once again, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's not getting overlooked because it's probably the shoe in to win for best documentary this year, and. If not, it's probably one of the front runners. But I feel that this is another film that is not getting the public attention that it should. And I'm demanding for anybody to see this film. Everybody. Well, it is streaming on Hulu, so they should be able to do so. It's right there for the pickings. And hopefully everyone will get a chance to see this. I agree with you that it is pretty much a shoe in for a nomination without a doubt. It should be listed there and we'll see where the chips fall. I know you worked or worked for you a lot better than it worked for me, but not because I think it is in any way not a well-made film. It is an incredibly well-made film. It is very impressive what Questlove was able to do with obtaining this footage and then translating it to screen. So while the material itself didn't necessarily have the same effectiveness on myself as far as an enjoyment standpoint, I will completely agree with you on the structural, like technical filmmaking at play. It is Definitely one of the better documentaries of the year there. No doubt about that. Well, next for me is The Summit of the Gods. And this feels like a movie that was just made directly for me. And it's a movie that is so beautiful and so vast in its scope at some points during its cinematography and the way that it's depicting landscapes and mountains that I really wish I had gotten to see it in a theater and not just on my 65-inch TV at home, which is quite good, but I wanted to see it in, like, IMAX, honestly. It's a French anime-style adaptation of a Japanese manga that itself is an adaptation of a 1998 historical adventure novel by the Japanese author Baku Yume Makura. So it's kind of a layered adaptation in that way. The plot is fictitious, and it follows a reporter slash photojournalist named Fukamachi Makoto, who comes in contact with a mysterious climber named Habu Joji, who claims that he has found the lost camera of George Mallory and Andrew Irvine. And Andrew Irvine and George Mallory were a pair of real climbers who actually perished on Mount Everest in the 1920s. Now, Sir Edmund Hillary, you may have heard that name, he is famous for being considered the first to officially summit Mount Everest in 1953. But as you might put together, if these photos from this camera of these two guys in 1920 emerged, then it could be possible that they would be credited as the first to have summited Mount Everest. And so this is the tale that is being kind of explored and told here is this reporter, Fukumachi, is going after this man, Habu, hoping to get this footage so he can validate for himself whether or not George Mallory and Andrew Irvine should be the true first summiters of Mount Everest in the books. And much of the film is spent kind of like a mystery noir in a sense, like trying to piece together Habu's past. So Habu Joji goes missing with the camera 
and he's got to try and track him down. He does a lot of like detective work and he's trying to get at this man's past and gain access to the camera. The character of Fukumachi reminds me a lot of John Krakauer. If you're familiar with this man, he has summited Everest himself. He wrote a book about it called Into Thin Air. He also has written a book called Into the Wilds, which was a film adaptation of that was made and inspired one of my tattoos. I absolutely love this author. And he is someone who he has an understanding of why these climbers risk everything and try to achieve these great heights, literally and figuratively. And so the story is kind of partially about him solving this mystery, but it includes his own amount of loss and personal growth along the way. And so it was really moving. Ultimately, he ends up having to go on his own physical journey with Mount Everest in order to get to the, the details that he wants. And it's breathtaking. It's just spectacular pieces of animation. It is maybe the best animation I've seen all year in these moments of Mount Everest and climbing that happens it just really gets at the detail and the danger and the beauty in alpine mountaineering in a big way. It's a fairly patient film. It's kind of quiet and slow. It's not got a lot of crazy action going on. And it feels almost poetic and highly focused on just a very few characters, despite having this bigger like scope of importance. The score is marvelous. It's got this melancholy to it, and yet in moments where the climbing is taking place, it can really amp up and sets a thrilling tone. I can't get enough of anything to do with alpine climbing, and so to have that love translated in this anime style, which is something I already adore anyway, it worked for me in a way that I can't even expect it will for everyone i know it has for a few others but i think it's something that demands to be seen and experienced and at least given a shot and you should be able to do that because it's available and it's streaming on netflix now and so like we said with several of these films you really have no excuse most of you have netflix fire this up give it a shot the english dub is on netflix and it is sufficient so if you don't want to listen to this or you have a problem with subtitles i'm not going to get into that argument with you about what's right and what's wrong for you, watch it with an English dub and you can enjoy it just fine that way if that's your thing. Well, next we have a couple of Coles's picks to take us home. Both of these movies happen to be blockbusters. Both of these movies happen to be comic book films. Both of these movies happen to come out on HBO Max. All right, Coles, why don't you uh, go go forth and tell us about these two? So the first film is pretty much a fixer-upper from a film that was made a few years ago that everybody thought be the next great comic book film. I'm talking about The Suicide Squad. And I feel that James Gunn finally understood what it takes to bring this kind of material to the big screen. Now, of course, you're going to have your doubters and naysayers out there that say that David Ayer, there's nothing wrong with his Suicide Squad. That it was studio interference, that it's not all on him, that there's missing scenes that actually make this a great film. And yes, that may be true, but the version we got in 2016 was a mess. <laughs> it, it, it was a big mess. And I feel like that this was a referendum, that mess, and also its own great, fun, 
in zany comic book adventure. I mean, we have some of the same characters you saw from the first film, but we also get some new ones, and they do a great job. We have Idris Elba as Bloodsport. Pretty much is just another dead shot, but Bloodsport, he has a dramatic arc that goes throughout the film that really paints him as just more than just this world-class assassin. We also have Ratcatcher in this film. We have Peacemaker, played by John Cena. We also have Polka Dot Man, and we have, of course, the amazing Harley Quinn, played by none other than Margaret Robbie. All of these characters come together to create an adventure that is bloody. It's pretty much just a mile a minute. Like, there's almost, like, no time to rest with this film. Like, it gets in, gets out with a lot of the scenes. There's a little rhythm, jumpy energy with this film. And I had a whole lot of fun with it. Like, I pretty much was in the theater along with you. I was squimishing at some of the gory kills, and, and I really liked it. I know that for some people, that's a big complaint when it comes to this film, but anybody who's familiar with the Suicide Squad, they know that it's a mature-rated series. It's, it's dealing with the worst of the worst. It's dealing with these criminals who are tasked to go and do these missions, and if not, they're going to get blown in the head by a crazy dictator like like Amanda Waller. And, of course, we have Viola Davis um, returning in that role. And I feel that the Waller in this film gives a lot more context and we get a sense of how evil and psychotic she is. And it feels right in line with the comic book. I feel that James Gunn, given his pedigree with Guardians of the Galaxy and with other stories of his ilk, he knows how to bring the fun out of it. He knows how to make it just great to watch and very rewatchable as well. Also, this film stands as one of the best 4K discs of the year. If anybody who has a OLED or who has a 4K Blu-ray, you will be right in mind to get this film for your collection. Yeah, Suicide Squad, awesome. Um, amazing. Uh, there's not enough adjectives I can really do to describe it. It is pretty much a must-watch film for this year. It is available to buy on Video On Demand. It is also still streaming on HBO Max, and it is available on Blu-ray and 4K now, so you can get your hands on it pretty easily if that's your bag. And so, to finish out, we have, of course, Justice League, the Snyder Cut. Three to four years, I mean, when I was on Twitter a lot, I would just see this hashtag, the Snyder Cut, just floating around over and over again, and I was wondering if this was a movie that was eventually going to die out and cease to exist, but no, this movie got stronger and stronger and stronger, and once we saw Gail Gadot, once we saw Ray Fisher, whose character was done so bad in the original Justice League, he literally had no character at all, and we have um, Jason Momoa coming out and asking for this cut to be released, then the movie was justified. What we ended up getting was a film that, just like The Suicide Squad, does a great job of fixing up the problems that laid ahead for the original version. Um, Josh Whedon... um, you know, he has some personal issues off of the set that's affecting him, but on the set of this film, he really didn't do a good job with bringing together Justice League. It felt like a rush job. It felt like something that Warner Brothers was looking to capitalize on and release after the lukewarm reception of Batman vs. Superman, and also a reason to capitalize on after the success of Wonder Woman. Uh, use of Wonder Woman in the original Justice League was <laughs> an embarrassment, but Leave it to Zack Snyder to really show you who he truly is as a director. A guy who has a sense of epic storytelling. A guy who knows what, who has a love and a passion for these DC characters. Who is trying to bring them into their best light. And he did it with this, do not, four hour epic. 
It is four hours of your time, and I know that's a lot for most people, but hey, think about when you binge watch a TV show. You watch four episodes, most episodes stand for an hour, so you're not going to have any problem watching this cut, especially if you love comic book films, because it's marvelous to watch. The visuals are great. I love that it's in a 4-3 aspect ratio. It, it feels like a Zack Snyder touch that gives it already enough of a difference from the original cut. You get to follow this team coming together gradually, and we get to see these backstories of all these characters, where they were before they got together, and where they are now. And I think the biggest victor of that is Ray Fisher. Ray Fisher nobly came out in the media and talked about how he felt shamed, how he felt that he was undercut by the cuts and the student interference that was made to Justice League a few years ago. Well, now he finally has something he can be proud of because in the Snyder Cut, you really get to see the character of Zyborg be Zyborg, be somebody who's fully fleshed out, be somebody who has their own autonomy, and somebody who is actually probably the most powerful member of the Justice League outside of Superman. And he gets his just doing this. You know, I love the scenes of The Flash. I love the scenes of Batman. I love Aquaman. I mean, this this was a film that had to come out. This is a film that had to come out to show you that, I mean, I'm not going to lie. We do deserve Snyder to come and make his own DC films after this. I mean, it, this was a big ball of support for. We probably will never, ever get to see it, sadly. But the Snyder Cut showed you that not all online movements are bad. Some of them can be done for the good, and some of them are can be used to fix problems and to show that devoted fan bases may have something to say when it comes to how these films are being pumped out by studios. I'm not saying that this will be the right case for everything that comes out. I'm not looking to get a David Ayer director's cut of Suicide Squad. Like, I'm not looking to get a director's cut of every superhero film that came out that was bad, but felt that it was fair to have a director was doing work on a film only to be taken off of it and given to someone else and they make it into stir-fried crap and to now see that director be able to show people what his real vision was what he was trying to do with it where he was going with the series just goes to show you that art true art can't be silenced and the Snyder Cut what can I say it's one of the best not only one of the best comic book films of the year but one of the best of the year and I'm not embarrassed to say it well, you shouldn't be because it is. I agree. And it's just on the outskirts of my list. And it's been one of my favorite films of the year as well. It's phenomenal. It's so good to get to see him get his opportunity. Everything you said is just so, so spot on. Even the David Ayer should not get his chance part, which I concur wholeheartedly with. But no, it's so good. And it is so worth that four hours. You don't even feel them go by, honestly. Like, I mean, I watched it in one sitting. I just, I mean, I had the time. I was able to make that commitment, but I didn't feel like I was watching a four-hour movie. It felt like a superhero epic, the likes of which we have not seen aside from Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. It's on that level when it comes to scale and cohesive kind of storytelling and the way that it does things for the DC universe. So I'm right there with you. I was a skeptic. I will be fully honest about that. I've always loved Zack Snyder, but he's had some misses for me recently after the Justice League. And so, you know, I wasn't 100% sure whether or not he was going to be able to make it that much better than Joss did. But I was wrong. 
He knocked the home run out of the park. Uh, and I'm so, so glad that this came into existence. Now, I do wish that some of those fans would just shut up about it, though, because it has gotten a little bit annoying. Next is hashtag recast T'Challa from our man, E-Man, Emmanuel Noisette at E-Man's Movie Reviews. Maybe that'll be the next fan petition to actually evoke change. But Snyder Cut, it is still streaming on HBO Max. It is available on Blu-ray and 4K now. And it was discussed on episode 277 of this podcast in depth. Okay, time for the big reveal. I think you might have given yours away already. I probably kind of did too. It's hard not to, but uh, Kales, since we didn't put these in order, we've got to come out with what is our number one at least of the year. What is that film for you? Summer of Soul. Summer of Soul. I figured when you said this is my only five star of the year, I was like, uh, it's going to be really weird if he picks something else. <laughs> I might have to call him on it and that's going to be awkward. So good deal. That's cool. You know what? I had a free solo a couple of years ago was my number one film of the year too. And it was a documentary. And so you're not alone in that being the case and having a documentary, your number one. I know some people are kind of like anti doing that. They just feel like it's not right. I, whatever it is what it is. And I think it's awesome that that one has resonated with you and stuck with you all year long. My number one movie is the green Knight, which Patrick and I just discussed in depth. I know I didn't say a lot about it on this podcast. I just have emptied myself not only 48 hours ago, and I've gotten multiple feedback already about that podcast from folks who loved it and said that they really enjoyed the conversation. And we went so deep into it for two hours. So I highly recommend you give episode 304 a listen. And you'll find out all about why I love the Green Knight. It is full of spoilers, so you do need to watch the movie first. But you know what? That's a bonus. Like, you get to see the best movie of the year, in my opinion. And you could even say that Kalesa and I don't necessarily have to, like, be opposite. See, I'm giving you a narrative film. He's giving you a documentary. Just go watch these both. If you got to pick one, that's it for us. Summer of Soul and the Green Knight. Before we take off, Kalesa, do you have any honorable mentions? We don't have to talk about them in depth or anything, but was there anything you wanted to just give a shout out to and say, hey, listeners, be sure and watch this movie? Um, I would say there's a few I have. Um, one of them is Netflix to Horror They Fall, which is what I would describe as a black Western, but it has Jonathan Mayer, Zazie Beast, Idris Elba, Regina King. It is a of kick-ass fresh air for you. Also, I have Shiva Baby. Um, I The last time I checked, I saw it on HBO Max earlier in the year. Who knows if it's still on there? But I would say that it's like the little sister to Uncut Gems. That is one of those films where following this character and things are getting crazier, crazier, and intense and chaotic by the minute, and you're not sure if they're going to be able to escape it, or you as a viewer is, is going to be able to escape that stress. So Shiva Baby, another great honorable mention. I also want to give a shout-out to... Eternals from the MCU. Uh, I noticed this year I didn't have any Marvel films inside of my top 10, but if there was one that came close to being there, it was Eternals. And I know it's going to be a little bit of a controversial opinion. There was a lukewarm reception when it happened when Eternals first came out, and it hasn't really gotten the buzz, you know, definitely not close to the buzz that No Way Home or movies like Black Widow had, but I will say that Eternals is a different film unlike any other MCU film we've had. And I think it's for the better. And I would like it if more people were able to give it a shot. 
I understand that there are a lot of MCU diehards out there that are not feeling it, calling it, you know, very too serious, too dark, a little bit too realistic. But I think those are the qualities that give it something other MCU films do not have. And I think it deserves more recognition for this year. All very good picks. I'm actually really excited about rewatching Eternals. I have almost gone the shady route to do it because I'm anxious <laughs> to see it again. And I'm holding out because it becomes available on Disney Plus, I think, like next week. I was looking this up just the other night. That movie, I didn't have the best experience with it when I saw it, but I've just kept thinking about it for the last three months and wanting to see it again. And so I'm hoping that I do have a much better kind of reaction than I did the first time going in. It happens to me more than I love to admit. So, you know, I don't care how I get there. If I get to love in a film, that's all that matters. A couple for me that haven't been mentioned, The Card Counter is really high on my list. That's Paul Schrader's new film starring Oscar Isaac and Ty Sheridan. Oscar Isaac is a fresh out of prison, uh, ex-military member. He's been in Leavenworth and he is a poker player and very, very good at it. That's how he makes his money. He doesn't hustle people. He is just a very good poker player, which is kind of a nice change of pace, honestly. Usually you see these stories be about some sort of, you know, uncouth personality who is using their talent in an unfair manner, but he doesn't really do that. He ends up mentoring this kid who has revenge on his mind. And I really don't want to go into the story too much because I think it's pretty fascinating the way it all unfolds. This movie has a great style to it, an incredible score. Uh, it just, it moves at a good pace. And for some reason, it, it was maybe even better than First Reformed for me. First Reformed had this religious angle that I really appreciated. And the performance by Ethan Hawke was phenomenal. What The Card Counter does, it also has a phenomenal, one of the year best performances, this time by Oscar Isaac. And it sort of delves into that same kind of question and answer game that First Reformed did, but it doesn't have the surreal element. It doesn't have anybody floating in the sky or doing any of this transcendentalist type of stuff. And so I liked that better. And it's one of those movies that you'll figure out kind of where it's going and the tragic nature of what is about to happen pretty early in the movie. And it makes the journey with the character that much more impactful. Walking through the experience and seeing how we get from point A to point B, I highly, highly recommend it. Another one uh, is, I want to say them all, Finch. I'll give two shout out real quick. Finch and the Tragedy of Macbeth. One is available on Apple TV Plus now. Finch is there. It's Tom Hanks with a robot in the apocalypse. Uh, or not the apocalypse, but it's uh, a sci-fi future where there's been, the earth has been ravaged by, I guess climate change has caused all sorts of crazy natural disasters to take place and lots of humanity has been wiped out. And so he's creating this robot and going on a journey and his goal is to teach this robot how to take care of his dog after he's gone. It is the sweetest thing and it's very simple and it just totally resonated with me in a strong way. Patrick and I did a full episode on it. I love it. It's one of my favorites of the year. I guess all these are my favorites of the year. You should know that. That's what this episode is all about. I don't have to keep saying it. Uh, the other one, The Tragedy of Macbeth, it will be on Apple TV Plus in early January. The most stunning technical piece of filmmaking I saw all year. It's this movie. Acting, cinematography, sound, 
presentation is just just mesmerizing. It's like eyeball candy. It, it looks and sounds amazing. If you're not into Shakespeare and into the language of Shakespeare and how that gets portrayed, it's going to be hard to connect with. And so that's a little bit of a challenge for some people, but from a just, I was wowed by this movie fully and I couldn't get enough of it. Last for me, I guess I'm just going to mention and say Cyrano. It's also not out yet. It'll be out a couple weeks into January. It's a musical starring Peter Dinklage and Haley Bennett. Peter Dinklage, y'all, can sing. All the songs and the score are written by The National. It is emo AF, and that is my vibe. And I love this story. It is romantic. It is tragic. It is heartbreaking. The music makes me swoon, makes me cry. I love it. It gets me all up in my feelings, and I think it is a wonderful, wonderful movie all the way around, and I'm really excited about the world to get introduced to it, uh, so much so that it's going to get a full episode as well. So I guess I'll stop there, because I could just keep going and going and going, and I know you could too. Before we leave, I will reiterate something that we talked about very briefly, or I mentioned very briefly on the last episode, and that is that Kales is going to be leaving us, at least for a while, uh, to do some other stuff on his own. Feel and Film Plus spoiler-free reviews are going to be going solo with myself in the future, and we're going to be bringing a whole bunch of new content to the channel. Um, I'm going to be just putting my head down and committing to that. So you're going to see some unique and different type of content flowing out. Coles will be showing up in some of that content as a guest. He's just not going to be a regular presence on FF Plus reviewing every week. He's, he's got some stuff going on. Coles, do you want, have anything to tell people about where they can still find you and keep in touch with you? Because I want to make sure that your fans still are able to get your opinions on movies when they don't hear you on here. Uh, well, if anybody knows me, they'll know me. I'll be on Facebook. I'll be you know, constantly checking in. Maybe not constantly, but occasionally checking in with anything I'm watching at the current moment. If you really want to get a gauge on what I'm really seeing right now, then go to letterbox.com and you'll see my logs and my diaries and my reviews of anything that um, I happen to be watching. Yeah, it's just the, in the beginning of New Year, there are going to be a lot of changes for me, especially with how my life is going to go. And it's nothing really bad or anything serious. It's just uh, just a new, uh, probably a new breath of fresh air for me. So, but I'm still going to be watching films. I'm still going to be in our awesome Facebook discussion group, hammering out my hot takes, hammering out my um, sometimes personally uh, out there outlandish opinions and having fun talking about film. Good, because we want it no other way. And he will be back. Like I said, we've already got some plans for him to be on some episodes in the future, like a movie draft in February that I'm excited about. Um, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of stuff on this channel and in this podcast feed for you guys. That is it for us this week on FF+. Plus. We usually say that we hope you found a movie that piques your interest. Well, you have, I don't know, 20 movies we just talked about. So your daggum bell better have at least one that piqued your interest. And if you do get a chance to see something that we talked about here, let us know. Come find us on social media. You can hit us up on Twitter at Feelin' Film and at Black Nerd Magic for Kales. Or you can find us on Letterboxd. Or you can find us both in the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group. There's always a link to that in the show notes. We'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching movies and keep feeling film.